Welcome back to the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. Sentientism answers those two deep questions by committing to using evidence and reason and having compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I talk to Victoria Hogan. Victoria is an actress, film producer, writer, voiceover artist, and animal activist. She's appeared in Netflix's show Haunted, the comedy central show Nathan For You, in a long uh, range of theatre productions, and in the video game Kingdom Come Deliverance. Victoria is an animal rights activist. She co-founded the production company Quantum Kitten, and you should look out for Victoria's new venture, the Cosmic Creature app. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the podcast as a whole, so why not write us a review or give us some stars on your listening platform? Every share, review, and rating helps us nudge a few more of the 7.7 billion people towards more compassionate, rational thinking. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info or just search for sentientism on your social media platforms. You'll be made very welcome in any of our global community groups. They're open to anyone interested in these ideas, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. Hey, Victoria, how are you? Hi, I'm, I'm well. How are you? <laughs> Very good, thanks. Doing good, doing good in these strange times. But yeah, I think coping is the best way of putting it. So unluckier than most. Yeah, only yeah. mildly insane. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I think that's all we can ask for at the moment. So thank you so much for making the time to join this sentientist conversation. And as we've talked about before, it's really a series of conversations about what I see as the two deepest philosophical questions. What's real? What should we believe? And how should we go about forming those beliefs? And equally as important, what matters morally? What should we have compassion for? What should we care about in our moral and ethical systems? And I'm putting it in the context of this idea of sentientism, which I'm suggesting answers those two questions in a really simple, albeit pluralistic way. So when it says, what's real? Sentientism suggests we should take a naturalistic approach that uses evidence and reason to probabilistically and provisionally hold beliefs, retaining humility and being open-minded, trying to engage honestly with reality to form our beliefs. And when it comes to what matters, the clues in the name, we focus on this concept of sentience, which in simple terms is the capacity to experience, whether that's suffering or flourishing. You might go back to Jeremy Bentham's, can they suffer as a test of which entities should we care about? And that's what it says. It's simple and pluralistic. But in these conversations, I'm talking to people who agree with sentientism, but also people who disagree with it too. So it'll be fascinating to understand your personal philosophical journey and see where we end up. But before we go to those two questions, uh, for people who don't already know of you and your work, how would you best introduce yourself? I have a background as an actress. Perhaps some people have heard of me through that, but I always, I've always been a performer and um, a filmmaker and an artist, I think first and foremost. My secondary focus has been animal rights. So for most of my life, it's been as a vegetarian and then a vegan, and now I'm something sort of different, which we could talk about later, and as a volunteer for various animal rights organizations. And then recently I've started, I'm working on an app called Cosmic Creature, which will hopefully encourage users to reduce their meat and dairy intake. And that's where a lot of my energy has been recently, but I'm currently making I'm currently making films and exploring my own spirituality and working on this animal rights. That's, that's great, thank you. And we, we can come back to that later on because the the final question we ask, I guess, is how can we make try and make the world a better place? So um, your activism and your current project will be uh, interesting to talk about there too. But before we get to that, uh, the first of those 
two central questions I like to discuss is what's real. So for many people, that's a story about whether they grew up in a more spiritual, mystical, maybe religious household and culture, or whether they grew up in an atheistic, naturalistic context, and then how their philosophy has shifted over time, if it has, and how things have developed on that front. So you can wind the clock back as far as you like into childhood, but it'd be fascinating to know your personal story on that front and where you are now. Yeah, what a question. What a, it's, it's hard for me to know exactly where to begin. I was just discussing with my husband last night about how each of us view the nature of reality, because I would say that I like I hold the word reality quite loosely. If you were to ask me what's real, I would say, what do you mean by real? Like yeah. what all, all I can fully say is I am here. I'm having this conversation with you. I'm experiencing that. And anything else, I don't know. I don't know if it's real or where it's not real. We were just watching this documentary on sleep paralysis, which is something I experience frequently. And I think when you start to have, when you start to have, when your consciousness starts to travel from waking consciousness into sleeping consciousness, and you retain the thread Mm. of awareness and awakeness, I think most people would, for example, fall asleep and say, oh, I'm entering into unreality. And then I'm waking up into reality. But I think that as you sort of move along the spiritual path, it becomes very easy to que- question why one is realer than the other. So I would say, like, first and foremost, what is real? I, I don't know, nothing, everything. Yeah. <laughs> Does that make sense? Is that too broad? It's almost like a, it, it, it's almost, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's almost like an extreme level of epistemological humility where you're recognizing that you know, you understand your own experience, but beyond that, you know, progressively, it's harder to have real confidence about what else is out there. Yeah. And I, I think really reality is potentially just you as your most conscious self in any given moment. Mm. Because I can say, I think we've all had the experience where we're driving in a car and we wake up in our driveway and we don't know exactly how we got there, but surely we were turning the wheel and hitting the turn signal. And if we didn't have the memory of that, if we weren't sitting in our driveway and we don't have the memory of driving home, then we don't have much evidence for what happened in those moments where we forgot. So yeah. we can only prove, I can only prove that I'm having this conversation with you, for example, because we're, we will have a recording of it. But other than that, was it real? I don't know. There's no real way of saying, right? Yeah. Is it, maybe this is a bit too broad and I should just go back to. <laughs> well, no, I, th- I think that's fascinating, but it w- yeah, it'd be great to know, uh, I guess, how you got to that way of thinking and again, you know, it'd be interesting to know, even from a sort of childhood story, where did you start? Where did your family start? What sort of assumptions did you have at that point? And how has that shifted to the point of view you have now? And I'd love to come back to that and dig into it a little bit deeper, but how did you get there? I grew up, I grew up in a religious household, though hmm. loosely religious. My grandpa is a minister, or he's a retired minister. I grew up going to church and I think I certainly believed the Christian frame in a literal way. I believed in God. I prayed before bed. If I did something bad, I would ask God for forgiveness when I was really quite young. So I always, I think I was born, I was raised in a religious context. Certainly, yeah. It wasn't strictly enforced at all. There would have been no consequences if I had ditched the religion, which I did eventually. As I got a bit older, maybe around 11 10 or 11, I started to have experiences that I think made me question the nature of reality and began to lose my, like my strict belief in Christianity. But I would say 
I maybe during my early teenage years, I would, I decided to be an atheist. I was, I was angry and frustrated with the world around me. And I, I didn't think too much about religion at all, but then again, it started to creep back into my life when I was about 14 or 15. And I really took on a spiritual context. I started exploring Buddhism, Hinduism, Wicca, like really just ran the gamut of religious questions and experiences. And as I've gotten older, I suppose I just hold all of these different beliefs and uh, religions as loosely true or loosely real. And interestingly, as I, especially through, I'm 30 now, so especially through my early 20s, I was very anti-Christian. I felt like it was, I felt like it was troubling. I felt like it was damaging to society. It was a judgmental religion that inhibited the freedom of my friends. Yeah my friends who were homosexuals or my friends who wanted to engage in activities that weren't supported by the Bible. Mm. But interestingly, as I get older and as I get further along in my spiritual, maybe saying I, to, to keep the thread of humility, maybe I shouldn't say spiritual development, but spiritual exploration. I do find myself coming back to certain Christian concepts and not finding myself less troubled by their implications. Mm. I don't, I fully support equality in all areas. So I would never, I don't agree with that level, with that aspect of the Bible, but in terms of the sort of like deep intrinsic concepts present in the Bible Mm. and the beginning, (laughs) there was nothing. And then he spoke the words and here we are. Those things are becoming more compelling to me, but I'm of course, you know, still exploring. I could change my mind in a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Thank you. And, um, I like the I like the humility you you've laid out there. You, I think AJ Jacobs, one of my previous guests and a brilliant author, talked about holding convictions lightly rather than having deeply held beliefs, holding them lightly. It sounds like that's very much what you do. It's an open-minded, it's humble, still looking to learn and and explore. There's a risk, I guess, that if you take that too far to say, look, I I cannot know anything, you almost give up on engaging with the world completely. And I don't get that sense from you either. So I think the the description you lay out of being centrally confident of our own experience, our own sentience, I think, you know, I'd share that too, right? That's the one thing I'm probably most confident of because I'm experiencing it moment to moment. So it must be some sort of real. But then beyond that, I'm very aware that my mental processing capabilities are those of an evolved ape. They're not designed perfectly to understand reality they've evolved for other reasons that may correlate with reality and my perceptual abilities you know my ears my eyes my senses also are imperfect as well right they're giving us echoes of certain bandwidths of information that's partial and warped and we have biases when we process them as well so on the one hand i don't have i think i share that humility that who knows we need to be skeptical of our own rationality and skeptical of our own perceptions and there's some brilliant ways of demonstrating that through illusions and other tricks that very easy to convince humans to believe in. But at the same time, I do think that probabilistically and provisionally, we can build meaningful knowledge about what's real and what's probably out there. So I don't, I'm not hundred percent confident this table exists, but I'm pretty close to hundred percent confident it exists and we can go from there. But I think it's important because I personally take quite a hard edge naturalistic sort of scientific worldview, which says I will use evidence and reasoning to form probabilistic beliefs. I'm always open to new ideas because there might always be new evidence. So it needs that humility, but quite often that naturalistic way of thinking can actually move away from humility and be quite 
uh, I think, arrogant and aggressive and say, look, we have the facts, we have the answers, it's written down in these books, and it almost becomes its own form of dogma. So I'm not sure there's a question in there, but there's a, I think the, the humility is really important, but we've got, I think it's important that it doesn't take us so far we become sort of nihilistic and detached from the world because we're so cynical about our own ability to understand what's out there that we give up completely. But that's not even a question, but <laughs> I guess it's a balancing act. I agree. I agree with that. I think, yeah, I don't think, I don't think our approach to philosophy should be apathetic. I think it, I, I suppose when I say I hold it loosely, like I am, I am a human being I ha- who has suspicions about the world that mm. feel very true to me, of course. Yeah. Like, yeah. And I think if I'm operating by myself as I'm moving about my life or moving about my own home or occupying space in my head, I do have things that I feel are true and I believe are true. Yeah. But the extent to which I would comfortably and confidently say to you, this is true. I found out that this is the true nature of reality. Yeah. I, I that's where I would draw the line just because I, w- I suppose like one of the true things I would say about experience is that you, your experience feels true to you and my experience feels true to me. There's a truth. I would say I yeah. feel comfortable stating that confidently, but what the contents of your truth and the contents of my truth, I'm not really as interested in debating which one's right yeah. because yeah. we've each spent so much time in our own lives and in our own heads that we're probably not going to be convinced otherwise yeah i th- i i agree and i think the only balancing i'm i'm keen to find here is that again i think if we take that concept too far and say look my my truth is here your truth is there and there is no way they can ever intersect it's almost like we inhabit completely different realities again i find that a sad way of thinking because it undermines our ability to collaborate and to share knowledge and to develop knowledge together. But at the same time, I do think it's true, right? Because I have an information processing unit in my mind. You have a separate one. You have your own perceptions. We've lived in different environments. We have slightly different genetics. Of course, those perspectives are always going to be, in a way, distinct and separate. And unless we have some crazy advances in technology, I'm never going to perfectly understand your perspective and you're never going to perfectly understand mine. But again, I think it is similar to what we talked about before about what's real. I still think there's enough overlap between the configuration of your mind, given its evolutionary history. And if I put you under an fMRI scanner, I'd probably see similar stuff to if I was there as well. They're not the same, but there's enough commonality there. And there's enough commonality in our you know, perceptual apparatus and our ability to think that I think, again, never perfectly, but we can still develop probabilistic understanding of the reality that's out there that I do think we all share and an understanding of each other that enables us to collaborate and work together and develop knowledge. So it's, I think yeah. we're almost saying the same thing, but maybe I'm coming from a, a sort of harder edged perspective that's trying to be humble. And you're coming from a perspective that is super skeptical of solidity and confidence and, and wanting to be open-minded and hold things lightly. I wouldn't, say, I wouldn't say that exactly, because I think there are two things at play, which is the first thing is I think you can, it doesn't have to be a sad thing. You can greet someone with respect and say, okay, you're coming at the world from a very different perspective than I am. And we can share these perspectives yeah. and maybe we'll find overlap. So of course, I think that I'm not a, like, I'm not a solid system. I would say I'm an optimist in that I think it's really beautiful and interesting that people can move through the world and have different experiences. In terms of there being overlap, I think, I think there most likely probably is. I think essentially what, I think the human experience is probably quite, I think we probably share quite a, 
a lot more than we think we do, but we just have a different vocabulary and a different yeah. way of approaching it. Cause I think you and I are probably saying the exact same thing and yeah. perhaps, and we're just using our own language to define what we're trying to say. But I think with enough conversation, you can actually find understanding in most different sets of beliefs. It's just yeah. a matter of finding the right words to where each brain can process what the other is saying and click and understand. But I think this is why we have, I think this is why certain words like love or energy or God can be positive in there. In, it can be positively vague. Yeah. yeah. If I say love to you, we might have a lot of different ways to get there, but I believe probably we feel love in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. There's enough. There's enough probably. overlap in the concepts. Yeah. Most likely. Yeah. And, and the journey you described was really interesting because with many of my guests, it's been a similar story. So they might start out within a more established, formalized religion. Some, it's been quite gentle. Yours and mine was quite a background. It wasn't particularly intrusive. One of my other guests was actually teaching at a Sunday school in a Nigerian evangelist church. And his father runs the missionary network across the whole of Italy now. Some people have had a tougher journey to move out of that world. Lots of people then followed that similar sort of path of being quite strongly atheistic and maybe negative about religion and seeing the challenges there as well. And for many people, it was a combination of both evidence and reason and just saying that this story just doesn't stack up and I don't see there's enough evidence that it's true. But as you mentioned, there's also the some of the ethical problems as well. So whether it's caste discrimination or homophobia or sexism, which is you know still at the heart of even the most established accepted religions around the world today, right? It was a combination of the sort of ethics or the epistemology that made people move away. But then there's another stage to many people's journeys. Many people stay there, but then other people do reconnect with some of those other concepts that still feel they have importance and resonance. And there's different flavors of doing that. So, but you've described nicely the way you, you've become to see value in some of those concepts in terms of a broader meaning, maybe a wider connectedness of things, different perspectives, maybe a deeper meaning to everything that's going on. And other people like me have almost stuck with a very strong, strongly naturalistic approach, but still found a sort of awe and wonder and a sense of connectedness, even within a completely scientific worldview. So it's quite an interesting path. Others have ended up being more spiritual or developed an affinity with Buddhism or experienced with psychedelics that have changed their ways of thinking. So it's quite interesting how people go from sort of formal religion, a sort of angry atheist stage, and then some, something else, naturalistic or not. So it's a fascinating journey. Yeah, yeah. I think it is, I think it is quite common. I, I think if you look at maybe some of the, the basic principles of Christianity, which, look, uh, to be fair, I don't actually know a ton about what I'm talking about when I say Christianity, because I think my so far my reintroduction to christianity has been a bit esoteric which is i'm reading books on hermetic christian philosophy oh, yeah. which would be tinged with some woo if you will but if you look at the basic concepts of there is a sort of there is something larger than you it is a divine source and you are working your way up towards that source like that to me is pretty compelling, mm. I think, like a basic, <laughs> a basic journey through yeah, life. Yeah. Um, when we get into the other stuff, don't eat shellfish and stone your wife and things like that. I, I start to like question the context of when and where that was written. But yeah. yeah. And I think that's 
part of the interesting journey that many people go through is that uh, they might go back to something that has a more of a mystical element or a teleological element um, to it. I personally have stuck with something that's quite naturalistic. So there's a recognition of the connectedness of all things and interdependencies and this sense of awe and wonder, but I don't think there's an externally defined sense of meaning. I don't think there's a a goal that I, I or other humans are working towards over and above the ones we make ourselves. And that links onto the moral elements that we'll come on to discuss in the next question. But regardless, I think people who remain in a formalized religious mode find it hard to fix some of the ethical problems because they're baked into Christianity, Judaism, Islam, whatever, each of them in the formal stuff. It does become quite clear that the rules were often written down by a guy a couple of thousand years ago, and those ethics don't really line up well with modern compassionate ethics. But I think it is possible, it's entirely possible to maintain a broader sense of the spiritual, a sense of God as the universe, a sense of meaning and purpose, and much of which I wouldn't necessarily go along with from a naturalistic standpoint. But to have that broader sense of spirituality and divinity, I think is entirely possible to do without the problematic ethics. Sure. Whereas I think the more formalized stuff where you think of the deity as an individual with, with powers and an ability to judge and to cast small children into hell if they do the wrong thing, it's, it's almost like the problematic ethics are baked in, whereas with a broader sense of spirituality and the divine, I think you can have a universally compassionate ethic that is much much similar to where I think a naturalistic one might, might lead you to. Yeah. And, it, and maybe that's a good segue onto the second question, which is about that more that moral side and that what matters morally, what's the foundation for ethics? Because some people, when they move from that religious context to an atheistic one, are worried that they've lost the foundations of morality because they're mm-hmm. nervous that a natu- purely naturalistic universe leaves us without a moral foundation. I, mean, I don't feel that personally. But it would be interesting to know your view of what matters morally and, again, how that's shifted over time, both in terms of why others matter, why should we be moral, but also your moral circle and your moral consideration as well. And you've already mentioned your non-human animal activism as an important part of that. So it'd be good to know that journey too. Sure. Again, a broad question. Yeah, quite broad. It's interesting when we talk about one, one losing their morality with the loss of sort of the strict guidance of religion. Because Mm. again, like so much of what I've come to believe to be true about the world is intuitive. So if I ever make broad statements, it's an intuition of mine. Like I feel that most people are probably this. So I I can't say for certain that this is true statistically if we were to poll every single person in the world. Mm. But I, most people I encounter are kind and most people I encounter uh, don't walk up and punch me on the street if I if they're just offended by the look at me, the look of me. I've never been. What I'm saying is, I don't have the desire, like I don't have the urge to uh, to steal or to murder or to like harm. That's not an urge present in me, and I would at least like to believe that it's not an urge present in most people. Yeah. So when people say without religion, what's stopping us from looting all of the houses and murdering everyone? <laughs> Like, but is really is religion really the thing keeping you from doing that? Because then I'm afraid it's of- quite a it's quite an admission to make, isn't it? If someone says that, sure, yeah. If I didn't believe in God, I would be looting and murdering. Listen, is that what you would do? Is that is is it? Because I have a hard time. I suppose I'm an optimist in this way. I have a hard time believing that's true. I don't think you would loot my house. If anything, crime is just partially inconvenient. Like I think you have to go. It's a very as I'm moving into a new house and considering how I should 
protect it and my the items within it. I'm like, man, you'd really have to want to rob my house to do this. It's a full-time job. You'd have to watch my house and see what I'm doing. And you have to find a way to sneak in. You'd have to find a way to breach my security system. You're dedicated to doing that. You're probably, if you're going to commit a crime of some kind, you're probably the type of person who's going to do that. I just yeah. have a hard time. You're dedicated or you're desperate or both. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Maybe there would be without mass religion, maybe there would be more petty crime, like more small scale stealing or I, I don't know. I, I encounter a lot of Christians and religious people who do who do small scale <laughs> stuff but the, that probably their God or the version of God they believe in wouldn't like. So yeah. it doesn't seem like it's really preventing anyone. from. And, and some of the evangelist pastors have institutionalized theft from vulnerable people in the structure of their churches and the donations they receive. <laughs> so right. yeah, I, I share that skepticism. I'm not sure that even for many religious people, the, the deity is really having that much impact on their personal ethic day to day. I think most people are, yeah, good people, regardless of whether they're being watched over by God. Yeah. And if they're, if they're engaging in activities that are potentially harmful, they're probably, it's probably coming from a place of ignorance rather than intention if you see i I hold the belief that i don't agree with factory farming for example Mm. i think that it's i think if you were to um consider a cow god's creature and then you go to church and after church you, you go get a hamburger and you eat the hamburger without thinking about where it came from or why you're perhaps engaging in an activity god would disapprove of considering the amount of actual pain and suffering that went into making that hamburger which is to say i think people i think if you're i think people will reason their way into doing any sort of activity well it's not my fault that the hamburger was farmed in that way or it's not that big of a deal it's just one hamburger or i have to eat or whatever it might be like it's not religion isn't really actually causing people to be that insightful either yeah Maybe that's an unfair thing to say because I I don't want to I don't want to come across as I'm knocking religion because I actually do believe that Christians are probably good people and Catholics are probably good people and Muslims are probably good. People. Yeah, I think that there's a, a genuine deep vein of compassion that I think runs through all of those religions and sure. you know I, I I'd argue actually predates them all and the, and the challenge is only when some other set of beliefs warp that basic compassionate ethics and normally those beliefs aren't necessarily core or shouldn't be core to the religion i think most religious people are more compassionate than their church and more compassionate certainly than the gods that are described in the books they purport to follow which is why most religious people don't follow those books it's a continuous process of recognizing that stoning people or whatever it might be is just doesn't really accord with the modern naturalistic ethic and it just gets you know edited out over time, and the quicker we can do that, the better. So I agree. Yeah. I think it's yeah. I so I think what I'm saying to to like in a, a simple way would be I'm not convinced that religion actually causes like per, like on a large scale more acts of goodwill. Mm. I'm not necessarily convinced of that. That yeah. the religion is the sort of intention behind the act of goodwill, and I'm not necessarily convinced that religion prevents acts of bad will or poor will or whatever. That's my, but again, that's my intuition. I think overall there are great initiatives launched by churches, but probably if you're the type of person who's going to church with or without the religion, you're going to be the type of person who wants to support the community in some way, whether you tithe or not. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. I think it's, it's p- probably part of the rationale that people 
build for themselves to justify what they were going to do anyway, but it's not necessarily a sort of centrally driving thing for good or for ill. So it'd be interesting to know where, how it plays out for you, because there are different motivations for morality. To draw a bit of a caricature, some might say good and bad are defined by the nature of God, whatever God says is good, regardless of suffering caused. So the Abrahamic story, if God says, kill your child, that's a good thing to do. So there is a sort of divine command, that's what decides is good. There's also a, a rule compliance, right? Here's the Ten Commandments or here's the Quran or the Torah or whatever religious book. So compliance with that list, that's what good is, again, which tends to, doesn't really see suffering and death and as central. It's more about compliance with the list. There are softer ways of thinking, which are that morality is about uh, acting in accordance with maybe nature, which can be problematic because nature is not very moral <laughs> and many deeply awful things are natural. But there's also a, a softer sense that m- being moral is in accordance with some sort of wider purpose of humanity or the universe or some sort of teleological journey that we're going on together. And then another choice, I'll give you a, a broad menu and you may want to pick something else. And, and this is mine, is comes back to your discussion of the perspective of the other. And I guess that's where I come back to is that personally, I don't like suffering and I don't want to die. I'm pretty sure other sentient beings don't like suffering and don't want to die either. And so that's the conception of morality that I have, which is that it's moral to have concern for the experience of others. So in short, needlessly causing suffering and death is a bad thing. (laughs) You know, it sounds like a radical, there's lots of different ways you can say, this is what my morality is based on. Do any of those ring bells with you or how would you describe yours? Yeah, I I suppose it would be, it would probably be dominated by your perspective, mostly. But I also take a somewhat naturalistic approach, I think. Essentially, I think I I also, I've also been very influenced by psychedelics in my life. And I took, at one point, the supposedly most powerful psychedelic known to us currently, which is DMT MEO5. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. It would also be like, I guess, Bufrin or something. It's also the toad, if you've heard of people taking like something from the toad. Um, I took a synthetic version of that, obviously, because I don't support taking it from the toad, just to... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Tick the vegan Uh, box, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I went into that experience. You said... I actually participated in a... um, study on MEO5 because I def- I very much want to support the psychedelic movement. And we were asked to set an intention for the experience. And my question was, what is good and what is bad? Do you care? Whoever, I may have to provide yeah. the question, but I don't know how to frame it without doing that. Do you care? What is, what matters? What is real? What matters? Yeah. And I went into the experience. I had the experience, a truly an ineffable experience, though I could attempt to describe it if you were curious, but I think probably it's better to <laughs> just say it was uh, very intense. Yeah. And I came back with, when I came back from the experience and I came to, I had seen very strongly in my mind's eye, the earth and a big tree encircling the earth, its roots growing around it. And I remember coming back with something very solid in my mind, which is, okay, the, uh, uh, perhaps the universe, oh, I'm still actually being quite diplomatic. This is what, this is the information I came back with. The universe is actually relatively indifferent 
it's all of the things we worry about, good or bad, sort of exist in a state of duality. And the universe doesn't mind that yeah. duality, which could potentially explain why nature is occasionally beautiful and occasionally cruel. And the only sort of investment the universe has in you is that you continue, you create. So I remember feeling that, well, it would be a very good act of service to have a child, for example, because that is infinite creation. It allows for infinite possibilities because they mm. will have a child. And the most creative thing you could possibly do is create another human. But essentially, it wants to, essentially, I came back with this idea that the universe wants to be, <laughs> it wants to live. Creation is good and destruction is perhaps something we should avoid. So in terms of what's good or bad, if I crystallize that grand concept down into my daily life, I would say suffering leads to destruction. So I would classify that as bad. Um, watering my plants leads to life and growth. So I'd classify that as good. Mm. Um, humans flourish when you're kind and humans want to continue living and continue creating more things when you treat them with compassion and dignity and they have all of the basic things they need to survive. So that would be good. It's, it's amazing to consider like talking about what is good and bad because I am certainly not the authority on this, but as a, from a, from my own perspective, living is good. Dying isn't necessarily bad, but while we're alive, we should do things that encourage more living and yeah. save the dying for when we're dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't say dying is bad because dying is also a piece of what we do on life. Yeah. Things grow, things die and they die naturally or they die prematurely. But again, it's suffering would be tied to potentially like a premature death or a premature cessation of experience. So we want to avoid that because mm. continuing to evolve is good. That's what I would say. That's really interesting. And I think there's so, many, there's so much positive overlap between these slightly different ways of thinking, because in a way I put the quality of the sentient experience as the ultimate thing of moral value. So I would see creation as positive because it enhances the experiences of sentient beings rather than seeing the experiences of sentient beings being good because it enables creation. So it's a slightly different ordering, but I think there's still plenty of overlap there. And that, yeah. I think you and I would both agree that needlessly causing suffering is a you know, morally bad thing to do. And it seems odd in a way that I think most people would agree with that statement as well. But again, their ethics have been warped or shifted in a way that pushes that off course or makes something else often that doesn't exist as more important, but also critically that they don't recognize which beings are capable of suffering or capable of having experiences as well. And I think that's another journey I'm interested in you know, how, how you followed that path. Again, you mentioned your non-human animal activism. At what point did you recognize that non-humans could suffer and had some moral worth as well? Because it's quite an intuitive thing for often a young child to have, but quite often we're then essentially trained out of it because we're taught that animal farming is normal, for, for example. Sometimes religious ideas are used in that too, because ideas like dominion and we are made in God's image and the animals are here for our use can be used, but quite often it's a naturalistic scientific rationale as well that says we're, we're some more capable or more intelligent or more valuable species of the hello cat. So there can be both a, you know, a scientific or a religious justification for why humans count and others don't. But how did you go through that journey? Was that an early realization or something you came to later? It was, yeah, it was early. I was, I believe 12 or maybe I, or 13. And it was, genuinely spontaneous. I, I was in 
I can still, I still have this memory, but I was in my mom's kitchen and I was eating a turkey sandwich and I remember chewing on it. And I suppose the idea just occurred to me, what am I doing? I'm chewing. What am I chewing? Turkey. What's a turkey? Like, I think we, I really, I really agree with the anthropomorphization of animals. I want to encourage that, which I'll, I can explain further in my app because when we see something sliced up and packaged, we just don't understand what it is and why should we? Yeah. So I- one of my, one of my previous guests, David Pierce, who's an amazing philosopher, suggested that we anthropomorphize with robots and machines and other things that aren't sentient too much. We're too ready to think of them as like humans, but we anthropomorphize with non-human animals way too little in that we just too rarely take the perspective of the turkey or the pig or the chicken or the fish. Yeah. 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 So I was eating a turkey sandwich and it just, it just truly genuinely occurred to me that it was a turkey. I saw the image of a turkey running through a field and I thought I'm chewing this, I'm eating this. I don't feel comfortable with it. I remember I was eating and I just went, look, (laughs) and just let it fall out of my mouth. On the spot. On the spot. I was like, I can't do it. So it was always very, it was always a very, just a gut feeling and intuitive response. I didn't eat meat again after that for a very long time. I've actually since incorporated some fish into my diet because I found out that I was extremely deficient in some essential nutrients and was struggling with some mental health problems that were actually alleviated by incorporating fish into my diet. Mm. So at a certain point, I did have to look and say, okay, I am an animal too. And what do I, what do I need to survive? I think a lot of vegans disagree with this, but I happen to disagree with them. So I, I, I think finding the I think finding the like least harmful way to consume some amount of animal protein is necessary, whether it's biologically engineered or natural. I was trying to incorporate scallops and oysters and things like that into my diet because I feel comfortable doing that, but I'm actually allergic, unfortunately, so I couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, but I came to it through that. After that experience where I spit the turkey out, I went upstairs to my computer and I just looked it up. And that's when I saw the slaughterhouse videos and I just started reading about it. It was something I just had never been exposed to or thought about. And from there, my decision was made. I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to eat meat again. I was never going to have another hamburger. I never have. I was never going to, I was never going to participate in that, that again. And not because. And how did your family react? Was that a difficult decision to take and carry through? My family was quite supportive. I would say my, my. I, I was teased, perhaps, by my dad's side of the family, but I I was supported. I always had options available, and they bought me veggie dogs instead of <laughs> real corn yeah. dogs and things like that. So I was lucky enough to be supported. And I think after a few years, they knew it was what I was going to do. So throughout my teenage years, I was quite lucky Yeah, for that. Well, that's, um, yeah, an early stage. It took me a lot longer. It's Yeah, it's, I think it just doesn't occur. I think it just doesn't occur to people. And I think that, I think mainly my goal as I've gotten older and encountered a lot of people who eat meat and really feel strongly about eating meat. My goal is less about turning them into stopping them, but actually just reducing the intake. Because mm. the truth is that we don't need to eat we, there's no reason we need to eat as much meat as we're eating. There's just absolutely no reason. Mm. So my goal mainly from at this point is not to discourage, not to encourage people to be vegetarians as much as it is to just 
encourage people to to eat less. Yeah, yeah. And that segues on to the, the final question that we discuss in these conversations, which is about the future and how we can make the world a better place. And I think you and I, we have a lot of overlap in our ways of thinking, but we have some differences too. But I think we'd both like to see a world which was more committed to facts and evidence and reason and a little bit less on fabrications and one that had a broader compassion for sentient beings and where there was radically less suffering and harm being done in the world. What's your vision for, if you like, either a super utopian future that we might be able to get to or more realistically, things that we can achieve in uh, the nearer term? And how do you think we can get there? Again, another crazily (laughs) broad question. Yeah. Like in terms of my passion for animal rights, I'm a massive supporter of lab grown meat. I really hope that becomes a relevant part of society within the next maybe five years, I would hope. And I think that would be a great way to handle animal suffering. I, again, I know that some vegans tend to be, tend to disagree. I don't know how much you follow this type of thing. Reasonably. <laughs> I've, yeah. I have my share of exciting conversations on Twitter with the vegan and non-vegan communities, but I'm sure. Yeah. But for me, the imperative is about reducing, it's about the quality of experience of all sentient beings. So for me, it's about yeah. reducing suffering and, you know, needless suffering and death. I tend to, how can I put this? On the one hand, my philosophy about it is fairly purist because I take the perspective of each individual sentient being. I imagine what they're going through, and that fills me with horror and makes me quite absolutist in wanting to see a complete end to all animal farming and fishing, partly because I do think we can find technological solutions to you know, any nutritional gap or any with the right will. I'm sure we can get there. And I do think that plant-based and, and cultured meats and clean meats are a massively important part of solving the problem. But at the same time, I'm also very aware that taking that approach, taking a fairly absolutist, clean approach, a a purist approach, is not very helpful because it doesn't persuade many people. We know how deeply we're all indoctrinated and held by social norms and just doing the classic vegan thing of hectoring people and banging them overhead and telling them they're morally wrong just doesn't persuade many people. So if we really care about reducing non-human animal suffering, We've got to think effectively about what's the best way forward. And I think there I agree with you, right? We've got to look at plant-based alternatives. We've got to look at cultured meat alternatives. They've got to be fast, cheap, easy, available. They can't just be ethically better. They have to be fast, cheap, easy, and everywhere. And then I think we'll see rapid shift. And in that context, again, I'd also agree that reducing intake has got to help, right? Because it is reducing the suffering. I'm still upset about the remaining suffering that's caused. Less suffering is better than more suffering. So... Yeah, well, that's why I call these conversations rather than interviews, because it gives me an excuse to talk as well. Sorry. (laughs) I I enjoy hearing this. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think that the I think that the vegan movement sometimes is its own worst enemy because. Well, well, and there's also this it's, it's a human it's a human impulse to sort of engage with the person who's like quite similar to you. So I've had a lot of people engage with me over eating small amounts of fish and I am really not the person they need to be to convince because I'm doing so much for the vegan movement, actually, who they need to convince is someone like, like my next door neighbor who just has never even considered reducing their meat intake. So people tend, so vegans tend to, first of all, argue within the vegan community. So they'll 
like lab grown meat is becoming popular and then they want to take down the vegans who, who believe that it's worthwhile because, because they are, they prefer a more purist point of view. Yeah. It becomes That's, a purity thing, doesn't it? And, and, and to your point, I think this is what we're agreeing on. This may even seem like a silly question to ask, but does the vegan community feel like a warm, welcoming community you'd like to join? Yeah. Not always, not always. <laughs> well, it can feel pretty scary and intimidating, yeah. Even to other yeah. vegans, as you say. It's, yeah, yeah. I haven't had, I, I'm, I am as close to being a vegan as I think one can. So I have a bit of salmon once a week. Like I've essentially engineered my diet to say, okay, what is the least amount of fish I can consume to feel mm. nourished while still maintaining my beliefs? And it was a very long process to before I like had a, a piece of salmon and I don't even like the taste. So a lot of people yeah. say it's like an excuse for me to eat fish, but I actually, I don't like fish. So I chop it up and I like eat it really fast. It, it's like a baby bird. It's strange. But then I am, I haven't eaten dairy or cheese or anything like that in five years. Mm. And I haven't had any meat aside from salmon in 15. And I'm, I, I don't like want to associate with the vegan community because I'm like, well, I don't want to be involved in that. It's a scary community that they're mad. They're angry. Like I think yeah. they sort of feel, again, I don't want to knock it too bad, too much because I am technically a part of it. But And, it, and it's difficult because I understand the anger because the, thing, because the things we're talking about here, the widespread social acceptance of animal farming, it is a horrific thing that we're talking about. So I do, on the one hand, I empathize, but my message to those people is also, you're not going to win like that. It's just... It's, you've got to find, and, and that's partly why this, I quite like this idea of sentientism, because it's not just about animal ethics, it's about human ethics as well, right? And it's about universal compassion, even for people you disagree with. And I think yeah. we're much more likely to help people understand the reality of animal farming and their role in that institutionally and individually, if we engage with them with compassion, you know, understanding their history, the fact that they were brought up, as was I, with social norms that said this stuff was deeply normal the fact they live in societies where it's still normal and having a compassion for that and engaging honestly with them and helping them find alternatives that are easy is much more likely to be productive than winning a moral argument we just know that winning yeah. moral arguments is a slow painful process yeah and they're animals too right yeah so they're, yeah <laughs> they deserve compassion they are sentient beings humans are sentient are beings sentient too beings. yeah it's the thing that i think really turned the tide for me because I was actually a very passionate vegan for and vegetarian for most of my life. And I was at protests and I was angry and I would like at family dinners, I would berate my family for <laughs> eating meat. I, I definitely was a part of that. And I, it was, I was living in Prague in the Czech Republic and I encountered some Tibetan monks on the street and they said, can we buy you a a coffee because we are trying to learn English. So we'd like to have a conversation with you and we'll exchange some Tibetan philosophy with you for some conversation. So I said, yes. And I went and I was speaking with them about animal rights. So I was organizing a protest at the time, actually like a big, massive protest where we'd get on the trams and talk. It was going to be like an angry affair. Yeah. I told them, they, they told me about the spiritual benefits of going vegan. And I said, that's great. I am vegan and I'm engaging this protest and it's one of my life it's one of my passions in life to get other people to see what we're seeing and get on our page. And they said, it's not going to work. Don't do that. Why? I like, I can convince people. I can give them the facts. I can tell them what's going on. I can show them the suffering. And yeah. if they're passionate, if they're real, if they're good people, they'll see that it's bad. And they said, don't do it. It's not going to work. 
I said, the only way you can ever enact any sort of change is through reaching the, the human you're trying to change with compassion and helping them elevate their compassion. Mm-hmm. You don't have to, you don't have to present them with facts. You don't have to present them with images. You don't have to tell them what's right or wrong. If you help people be better, if you give people kindness and compassion and elevate their own levels of kindness and compassion, they will come to the conclusion on their own. And I think once I really fully took that in, I disagreed with it at first, but then once I took it in, I started changing the way I would speak even to friends and family or people Mm -hmm. on the street. And the difference it makes when you just say to someone, I totally understand why you're eating meat. Meat tastes really good. Like it makes you feel good. You're used to it. You're really, you're, you're a wonderful person. It's part of your culture. Yeah. You'd be amazed at the amount of people who are like, let me try. Oh, okay. I'll try that burger. I'll try that beyond burger. Or like, what vegan restaurant would you recommend? Like just giving people a very basic level of compassion and understanding has done a lot more in my experience. Yeah. And you're, it'd be interesting before we finish up to tell us a little bit more about your new project, which I think is trying to play into your philosophy about how to help people elevate their compassion. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Cosmic Creature? Yeah. Currently it's undergoing a simplification process. So we launched this big Kickstarter campaign and we've decided to pare pare it back a little bit initially. And we also feel like we can build it for free. So we wanted to stop the campaign um, in its tracks. But essentially you raise a cute animal creature by meditating and logging your meat and dairy intake. And and in doing that, you are rewarded with free plant-based meals or free experiences or in-game experiences. Your creature is happy and gets more abilities and so on. Essentially, I wanted to First of all, I wanted to create a concept that was maybe a bit younger so that if younger kids were, the aim was for younger kids to start playing it, but you never know who's going to relate to an idea. In fact, mostly it was middle-aged women who really, who have really responded to cosmic creatures so far. So, you know, (laughs) early demographic shifted. Yeah. Basically I wanted to, I wanted to gamify the experience of ethical behaviors because I believe that drawing back on some of our conversations earlier, I believe that most people, if they have the option to do something ethical or unethical, they will, if they're of equal, if, if it's equal opportunity, if it's, they're both easy to pursue, they'll choose the ethical option. Yeah. A few people would just do the, the unethical thing just for the sake of doing it. I'm, they exist, but I, I think they are the minority. So essentially, I just wanted to create a game that would allow people to get free items and anthrop- help anthropomorphize an animal for them and make reducing their meat and dairy intake fun. Like really the mission statement was like, what's a very easy, light, fun thing I can do? Because I, I think that I wanted to reach, if a person is going to turn vegan through watching scary videos or researching environmental impact, that is a person who's probably, again, as we were talking about with religion, they're probably going to make those choices regardless. Yeah. So my my question was, can I reach people who wouldn't normally consider these types of things and ask them to consider? Can I reach teenage gamers? Can I reach people who like just like mobile games and maybe they're not involved in in any sort of environmental or animal rights sector? Can I introduce this concept to them? Because I believe that things 
when things are popular and pretty and fun and easy, most people do it. Yeah. <laughs> most people like it. Most people yeah. are drawn to it. It's not, there aren't a lot of people like you who would devote time and energy to making a podcast, asking all of these wonderfully insightful questions, right? Like there aren't a lot of people like you, but there are a lot of people playing Candy Crush Saga. Million. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so my question was like, how can I reach Candy Crush Saga? People, like they're it. like, they're not, they're untapped, you will. Yeah. And I think that's that one thing I would always support is just a massive diversity of different approaches because the scale of the problem we're facing here is so enormous and the variety of people so broad that creative approaches like that, that will try and tap into different populations and groups with a different way of doing it. But there has to be something that on the one hand, yes, there are a few people who the sheer force of moral argument will make them change, but there aren't very many of them. We need to find ways of making it an easy, welcoming, natural, straightforward journey to just be more compassionate and express that compassion. And one of the themes that's flowed through many of these conversations is one where there's almost like this, there's this latent well of positive ethics that most human people have. I'm not idealistic, right? Not everyone's ethically perfect from birth, but as you said, most people are generally good people, right? So there's almost that latent well of positive ethics we need to tap into. And if we can just make it easy and straightforward and socially acceptable and practical for people to act in a more ethical way, that also then frees them up to upgrade their ethics and improve their ethics as well. It's very hard to condemn a system you're part of, but once you've been helped to move away from it, you can look back at it and go, that was clearly something I don't want to go back to. And I think uh, that's one of the weird things about us humans. I think it's actually easier to change people's actions sometimes than it is to change their ethics. And then the ethics will follow rapidly thereafter. So, so that, that's yeah, the absolutely. that's, and that's exactly what I think I am aiming to do with Cosmic yeah. Creature, which is just establishing the, the knee jerk habit of doing something in a very easy way yeah. and then letting the rest happen. And also if you do the good behavior, like I think I would hope that morally you've come to that belief system yourself, but but first and foremost, do the behavior. <laughs> first yeah. and foremost, yeah. do the ethical behavior. <laughs> That's and then what matters. Worry about yeah. later. Like first and foremost, just like stop factory farming. Just stop it. And then for the purists, we'll worry about how to change people's minds. But like first, there's suffering. End it. <laughs> yeah, that's the priority. That's a, that's a nice, clear, simple, aspirational message to end on as well. Thank you very much. It's been a fascinating conversation. It's uh, been a privilege to hear your personal philosophical story. Is there anything else you'd like to layer into the conversation you feel we've missed? We've, we've talked about what's real, what matters, and how to make the world a better place. That's pretty good for an hour. I think we're okay. Thank you very much. And um, what's the best way for people to follow you, keep up with your work, keep up with your projects, whether creative or app-based? I have all the things. So currently, Cosmic Creature is a little, is a ways away from being finished, but cosmiccreature.io. To follow all of my personal projects, victoria-hogan.com. And then I am on YouTube and Twitter and Instagram under Inserto Species. So you'll probably have to, to type it out because it's fun. That's great. <laughs> well, I'll include the links in the show notes before we publish. Yeah. And I always like to talk to people about this is my, these are my favorite things to talk about, actually. So I always like to hear from people and have people say hello. Great. It's been uh, wonderful to have you as part of this Sentientist Conversation series. And it's great to have you in our Facebook group as well, which, as I remind people, is open to anyone interested in these sorts of ideas and these conversations. You don't have to sign up as a Sentientist. So it's great to have you there too. And thank you again. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you to you too. 
Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?